Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Welcome, everyone, to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and my guest today is Ellis Coase. Ellis is the author of a dozen books on issues of national and international concern, including the best-selling The Rage of a Privileged Class. He also wrote a novel called The Best Defense, and he's got a new book out uh, called Democracy, If We Can Keep It. Uh, it's the definitive history of the American Civil Liberties Union. And it's not very often, uh, as he and I were talking before, that an author has two books out in one year, particularly in the year of the pandemic. Uh, his new book that we'll be talking about today is called The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. Uh, Ellis is a Chicago native, and he holds a master's degree in science, technology, and public policy from GW University, and he currently lives in New York City. But he began his career with the Chicago Sun-Times. He was a columnist, editor, and national correspondent. He's also been a contributor and press critic for Time Magazine, CEO of the Institute for Journalism Education, and is a chief writer on management and workplace issues for USA Today, as well as being a member of its editorial board of the Detroit Free Press. He's held fellowships at the Gannett Center for Media Studies at Columbia, uh, the University of California, the National Research Council, and other very prestigious institutions. Uh, he's also been a, a columnist and contributing editor for Newsweek magazine for the last 17 years, uh, while also being the former chairman of the editorial board and editorial page, editor of the New York Daily News. Uh, Ellis has done it all, I can tell. Uh, he's appeared on a range of national and international news programs, including Dateline, ABC News, and Good Morning America. I first met Ellis a number of years ago when he was a guest at the Miami Book Fair, uh, I believe. And it was, uh, it's great to reconnect with him now. So welcome, Ellis Coase, to A Literary Life. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Mitch, and delighted to be with you. Um, 
as we talked about before, we live in kind of treacherous times. And this book that you've written on free speech uh, comes at a particularly unique time for all of us in the bookselling industry, because this happens to the, be the week that we celebrate banned books. And after reading your book, it really puts this week in a very interesting perspective for me. During Banned Books Week, Ellis, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we in the bookselling community and the library community, we kind of sound the warning that we shouldn't be taking our ability to read whatever we want for granted. And the way we do that is highlight the thousands of books that have been banned in this country alone uh, by governmental agencies, by school districts, in all kinds of different ways. So given that background, I'd like to start our discussion on the short life and curious death of free speech in America by having you read something that really struck me in your acknowledgments. And it, I think, speaks a little bit to where you're heading with this very complex, interesting analysis of free speech. Ellis, would you read that for us? As a lifelong journalist, I've always had a special reverence for the First Amendment and for the essential and prominent role it assigned the press. Like many journalists, I had taken New York Times versus Sullivan as something close to sacred text. The 1964 Supreme Court decision had slapped down Southern segregationists out to destroy the civil rights movement and along with it, the free American press. With that decision, I assumed the high court had forever ensured the nation's free press will protect vulnerable Americans from the tyranny of powerful interests. I was wrong. During my stint as writer in residence for the ACLU, I had plenty of time to think through the many ways in which I was wrong. Well, that's what I'd like to discuss with you a little bit today, if I could. Ellis, tell us, tell us a little bit, you know, tell us a lot, uh, you, know, you know, about the theory of the book and how you found yourself to come to understand that you were wrong about your initial concept of understanding free speech. Sure, and let me just uh, begin to talk a little bit about why I even wrote the book in the first place and how it came about. Because I hadn't set out originally to write a book on free speech. Uh, as, I, as you mentioned, um, I did do a book uh, which was published a, f a few months ago, uh, which was a history of the ACLU. Uh, going back to 1920 or actually to 1915 and its evolution into the civil liberties organization it ultimately became and is to this day. And as part of the research for that, I found myself reading a lot of First Amendment cases and a lot of cases which, which speak and shed light, which speak to and shed light on the issue of free speech. And I ended up getting very much wrapped up in the whole philosophy behind free speech. Um, so a couple of things. One is that I decided, as I sort of stepped back, that doing a book on free speech, I was a separate task than doing a book on the ACLU. Um, that doing a book on the ACLU was doing a book on 100 years of, of American history, basically, uh, and as seen from the context of a particular organization. Whereas doing a, a, taking a hard look at free speech was meant looking at some very hard contemporary issues, it meant looking at some very uh, not well-known historical issues as well. Um, and the first thing I'll start with, is, which is the title, which is um, The uh, Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. 
So why do I talk about short life since we've had the First Amendment, you know, almost since almost as long as we've had the country itself? Um, one of the things that I realized as I got further and as I actually even began the research was that the First Amendment is not as old as we think it is, at least not in a, in a way that we think that, that we think of it. I mean, yes, it was ratified by um, the states in 1791, and it's been part of the Constitution ever since then. But uh, shortly after 1791 and 1798, we had the Alien and Sedition Acts, which basically tossed out the First Amendment in, in the sort of aftermath of uh, the Revolutionary uh, War that was going on uh, in France, you know, and the fear of many people in the United States that foreign ideas and foreign immigrants uh, and foreigners would endanger the U.S. Uh, and the then party in, in power, the Federalists, essentially passed these acts, which made it illegal to speak out against um, the government and specifically to speak out against Federalist officials. And so less than a decade after we passed the First Amendment, we basically tossed it in the garbage. And it took us a long time to retrieve it from the garbage. That's, that's point number one. You know, point number two is that even as originally passed by the Congress and ratified by the states, the First Amendment did not apply to the states. Um, actually, um, Madison had made a strong argument for it to apply to the states, um, and, but he was voted down and it didn't apply to the states. Um, and so you had the situation through all of the 1800s where, uh, or at least up until the time of the Civil War, where Southern states um, outlawed abolitionist literature, uh, talking about banned books, where we had banned posters and banned newspapers because they could not publish these things in the South. Uh, you could be arrested, your newspaper could be demolished, uh, you could be flogged uh, if you were disobeying these things. Um, that didn't really change, um, or at least the fact that, that the First Amendment was not beholden, the states were not beholden to respect the First Amendment, didn't change until the 1920s. Uh, and it changed uh, largely, it grew out of a decision uh, called Gitwick v. New York, uh, which was a decision that revolved around a couple of men uh, who were self-declared communists, who had published in their newspaper a manifesto, which, they, which was an advertisement. They claimed they, hadn't, they weren't even aware that it was being published in the newspapers. But, but, but published in the newspapers, a manifesto, uh, which called for the uh, overthrow, not, not necessarily violent overthrow, but called for a new form of government in the United States. Um, they were convicted under a, a form of a Sedition Act, um, and they went to um, a series of courts, including up, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, okay, we'll let this conviction stand. Um, but by the way, the, the law they were convicted under was a state law. They said, but by the way, I mean, even though we think these acts are egregious enough that we're going to let this law stand, um, states should have to be beholden under the First Amendment as well. Uh, and so they incorporated it um, via the due process clause, and that's a, that's a lot of legal talk we don't need to get into, but, but, but essentially they incorporated uh, the First Amendment into a protection from the states as well. Is that, and, is that where there was that great, um, you talk about the, um, the, um, the, 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 
the Louis Brandeis um, uh, descent, right? Right. Where he writes about that. Yeah. Well, there were there were a couple of of, of Brandeis opinions, you know, and at one point, and, and usually joined by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, um, where he articulates a, a philosophy of free speech. Uh, he did it in the Gitwick case, and he did it in uh, a case a couple of years after that, uh, a case called Whitney v. California, which was an important case. Again, it re- revolved around this time a, a communist who was a, a woman, um, a socialite uh, from the Bay Area in California, who had uh, decided to become a socialist and then a communist. Um, and she was very much a modern woman of the time. She was a suffragette. She was for, you know, equal rights for, for Negroes, as they were called then, et, et cetera. Um, but in becoming a communist, she ran afoul of, again, one of these laws. They had a lot of state laws back then. You know, they called them criminal syndicate laws uh, and basically made it illegal to join the um, Communist Party or other parties that they thought were inclined to overthrow the U.S. government. So her case went before the Supreme Court. It started out uh, in lower courts. She was convicted in California through a project after several years. In 1927, it gets this, through the Supreme Court. Well, there, um, the, again, the you know, Supreme Court agreed with the decision, in, including actually um, 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 Brandeis and um, Holmes. They both agreed with that decision. But they also incorpor- you know, added to their concurrence a lot of language justifying free speech, you know, saying that you know, the, the framers were not afraid of free speech, the framers had free speech uh, specifically as a way to protect us against bad ideas, against bad governance. And they articulated a philosophy that, that in essence said that in the long run, good ideas will run out, bad ideas, that the truth will prevail and made a, one of the most eloquent defenses of free speech uh, that has been written to this day, which led a lot of people to wonder, well, then why in the hell did they agree with the decision to convict this woman? <laughs> <laughs> but That's go figure, but they did. Complexity of the legal system, right? <laughs> but I think that, that, oh yeah, well, complexity of their way of thinking and, and, right. and, and, and their, their fear that um, even within the context of free speech as they were defining it, there was some possibility that advocating governmental overthrow was not right, uh, which is another issue about how free speech has always been confined in one way or another. But the, but the, but the intellectual framework that Brandeis and Marshall sort of outlined there is the intellectual framework that advocates of free speech took up and have been working from ever since then. Well, it's the intellectual framework. When I read it, when I read it in your book, I realized that that is what I grew up thinking. You right. know, that, that you talk about how free speech ex- would, would be able to expose falsehoods and fallacies, that free speech would be able to avert evil through, by the processes of education, those are all of the things, those are all of the, quote, really wonderful aspects of free speech. Exactly. And what your book has done for me is it put it into a context that I never really saw before. And I think that is really the, um, that's, that's really what you go on to explain, all of the intricacies and, um, and, and, and fallacies um, and dangers in just blindly accepting that notion. Well, one thing I realize is that it's a very naive notion. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a beautiful notion, 
And it would be great if, in fact, it were true. It would be great that if once people were told the truth, they would reject the lie. It would be great if once people were exposed to facts, they would, they, they would reject things that are not facts. But in myriad ways and, and in a thousand different circumstances, we've come to discover that that's simply not true. Uh, and we now live in an era of so-called alternative facts uh, where we have many people who are spreading things that are anything but the truth um, and they get accepted as the truth. And, well, and so and I love I love the way I mean, you you say that the framers of the Constitution had really no way of of understanding uh, Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all of that, the, the kind of alternate realities that so many people live in and what that does in terms of chipping away at the Brandeis notion of um, exposing falsehoods and fallacies. Instead, it acts as an echo chamber for falsehoods and fantasies. And also, and I mean, Brand yeah, uh, and also, you know, Brandeis and Holmes, you know, like all of us, were creatures of their time. Uh, and in their time, the biggest advocates for free speech were progressives. Uh, and they were fighting for free speech because, you know, that was the era of the, uh, the Palmer raids, the Palmer raids, where the then right. uh, uh, attorney general had thousands of people arrested, essentially because they were foreigners and, and they were associated with uh, bad ideas. Uh, it was, and it was an era uh, in which um, we had prosecutions um, right out of World War I, um, the most famous one perhaps being of the union members of the IWW uh, who were prosecuted for and, and convicted of and, and jailed and fined you know, for advocating against the war. I mean, we've had a case, uh, one of, perhaps one of my f favorite cases in, in, in this, in this uh, context of a guy who made a, a movie called Spirit of 76, which he thought was a nice patriotic movie about, you know, it was centered on the time of the American Revolution. But of course, the British were the bad guys. Uh, and he portrayed them as such. Um, and by World War I, of course, the British were our allies. And you could not do that without running afoul of the law. So he got a 10-year sentence for making that movie. And so the people who were really advocating for free speech were advocating from the left and from the progressive wing. And they were, they, they, they were, they were, I mean, we went through terrible uh, union fights in, the, in 1919. Uh, the steel unions, the the, uh, uh, the, um, um, the miners, um, yeah. the uh, the police unions in in Boston, the uh, dock workers in in California, yeah. all these big union battles that occurred in 1919, which were basically violently repressed in some cases by the forces of capitalism, you know, and you and so. You had the and 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 people were arrested and imprisoned often because they were articulating unpopular views, and so the idea then became, you know, free speech is of course the weapon of the progressive wing, right? And we now flash forward to the current era, and what we have learned um, before we even get into the whole issue of technology, you know, is that it can also be a weapon for anyone. And it can be a weapon, and and I think one of the um, more interesting cases that sort of set the, that was sort of the predicate for where we are now, uh, came in the uh, the presidential race of 2004, where you had John Kerry you know, running against uh, against Bush. And there was a swift voting of John swift, Kerry. Swift voters, right. 
And basically, Kerry, who was a war hero, uh, whatever you think of the Vietnam War, he, he, he performed heroically in it, even though he later rejected it. Um, he, he, uh, he got medals for that. Um, and, he, and a group of political operatives decided to portray him as something very different than that. They claimed he, his, his, his medals were unearned. They basically took a war hero and turned him into something close to a war criminal. And he haplessly stood by because he had never seen anything like this before. And in, in large measure, that's probably why he lost the election. So, so you had a, you know, so you had the speech weaponized in that way, uh, to an extent that we hadn't quite seen before. And I think that sort of was the predicate for the current era, where pretty much anything goes. Um, pretty. Now, much would you agree? Would you agree that the Citizens United case, which brought all of this money into the you know, it basically said that corporations should be treated as people and that they had, they were able to be involved in political, uh, political speech by spending huge amounts of money. Mm -hmm. Was that, this is... Oh, it's part of the rubric. Absolutely. I mean, the uh, Citizens United, as you correctly point out, I mean, it overturned the McCain-Feingold Act, which, which, was, which is an attempt right. to um, limit the amount of money you know, that organized groups, corporations, and other entities to put, put into political campaigns. And, and it, it, it tried to do this by setting, you know, one, amounts, and two, by um, not allowing co contributions to be made very close to the election at certain, certain times. And the Supreme Court threw all this out. And they basically said, look, um, corporations are persons. Uh, as persons, they have rights. And essentially made what to many people would seem to be a sort of absurd argument um, that a corporation has the same rights as you and I do to be heard and that, and that their speech cannot be suppressed, you know, and that um, the amounts, and so therefore the amounts of money that these institutions can pour into uh, political races uh, should not be um, limited, although there were certain, certain restrictions put on them that were, that were, not, that were easy to get around. Uh, and as a result, I mean, even... Um, John Paul Stevens, who was then on the, on the court um, and resigned, I think, that same year, even he spoke out strongly against this. I mean, he had, he had an eloquent dissent to that, where he basically said, this is ridiculous. Uh, he said, wait a minute. First of all, the founders didn't even think about corporations, because for the most part, corporations didn't exist back in 1787. I mean, the, the, the few corporations that did were specifically chartered by the states and licensed to do certain things that, that, were, that were fairly limited. Uh, and the idea that an entity that doesn't have the right to vote, that, that doesn't have, that doesn't die, that, that, that may not even um, consist uh, of U.S. citizens, you know, should have the same speech rights uh, as U.S. citizens is a little bit ridiculous. Um, but of in course, in essence, it's the co-opting of the argument. It's the co-opting of the progressive argument for of free speech in order to assert a, um, a a moneyed approach to dominating the conversation, one way or another. Oh, very much so. I mean, and, and I mean, I, re I write about that also in the context of Facebook uh, and Zuckerberg's defense. And, and that's yeah, a wonderful, that's a wonderful piece where he completely misconstrues Sullivan and he misconstrues so much. And I mean, you, you really do a wonderful job of dissecting all of that in the book. 
Uh, well, thank you. Uh, and, and he subsequently, just a couple of weeks ago, announced some revisions in their policy, which still don't quite get it right, but at least it makes it more different than what it was. But what I found particularly offensive about, Sul about um, Zuckerman's argument was that it was in defense of the right of um, politicians to run ads that were totally based in lies. Completely and trans deceptive. And trans right. Completely deceptive, transparent lies that were obvious lies. Uh, and rooted in conspiracy theory and, and other things of that nature. And his argument for why he thought that was okay was a First Amendment argument. Uh, and, and he said, well, you know, Sullivan v. New York Times, the, you know, the revered decision from 1964. He said, that's what that was about. You know, in, in that decision, you also had a case where there was an entity that was uh, using misinformation. Uh, and the Supreme Court basically decided that political speech that had to be allowed. And what I argue, and I think anyone who, un who understands that case would argue, is that Zuckerberg totally misconstrues what that case was about. Uh, it was not about an uh, organization spreading misinformation. It was rooted in the civil rights movement of the early, early 1960s. Uh, it was brought, and, and, and they, the people who were sued principally, now we're not just the New York Times, it was a group of ministers who were allied with Martin Luther King and were fighting for to get funding for their struggle. And they, they were trying to explain their struggle to the readers. So they took out a full page ad. And in the context of that ad, they talk about the arrests that King had been sub subject to and the physical abuse and other things that students protesting segregation had been subject to. And they ended up misstating the precise number of times that King had been arrested and some other similar errors that were, were made in, in their recitation of events, which were seized upon by the officials of Alabama to say, including the police chief there who said, well, I've been libeled. Uh, and of course the Alabama courts went along with them uh, and they awarded a settlement that it, in a libel suit that was unprecedented for the time, which half a million dollars. And then there were other state officials who had suits pending that would have been in the millions of dollars had they been won. Uh, and the and Alabama was, of course, going to give them their way because they wanted, first of all, to kill the civil rights movement, and they wanted, secondly, to to destroy the Yankee press that was down there covering it. So that was what that, that was what the Supreme Court was confronted with in 1964 when they looked at this jumble of events, and they came to the very logical conclusion that no. This, Officials in Alabama shouldn't be able to hide behind libel laws and, and a few innocent errors to totally bankrupt the movement and destroy the newspaper industry. Uh, and therefore, they, they set a certain standard um, where you had to exhibit what they called uh, actual malice, which is to say that you, that you knowingly uh, printed falsehoods, but not, not just falsehoods, but, but material falsehoods, falsehoods that were important. Um, and so somehow Zuckerberg got it all turned around to anybody who wrote anything, who printed anything that was not totally true was doing the same thing that political advertisements that were totally uh, fabricated were doing. Well, and you see where that's led us, you know, today. Uh, I mean, that is exactly, there's a straight line to that argument, which is now being co-opted by everyone on the right to allow all kinds of misinformation to get out there. And what um, we've come, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go I was ahead. gonna say, what, what we've come to see is that the freedom to speak does not mean all that much if you don't have the ability to speak. You know, and having the ability to speak these days in the political context generally means having access to TV or access to large amounts of money 
to purchase ads and to propagate political speech. So what, so what we've done is that we've given a, a, a huge advantage by allowing this huge flood of money into politics by those who have, who have money. And through what we know- Through corporations and through corporations. United and all of that, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, and, and we certainly know that politicians are much more likely to pay attention uh, to people who give them millions of dollars than they are to people who don't. Most definitely. You're in a very unique place to talk about the following because you wrote this thing about the ACLU, the history of the ACLU. And there are always two things that, I mean, I, stuck in my mind uh, has always been that, and maybe this is you know one of those progressive views about the sanctity of the First Amendment, or maybe it's misguided. But when you talk about the Skokie marches of the Nazi right. to Skokie and the ACLU defending it, and the same thing with the ACLU defending what went on in Charlottesville and, and the internal angst that that created. Can you speak to that a little bit in the sure. context of what we're talking about? And that position, the ACLU position, that it defends the right to speak, not the content per se, of speech. It's an old position for them. I mean, they wrote um, a pamphlet back in the 1930s when Nazism was on the rise in Germany. And the title of the pamphlet was something along the lines of, you know, why do we defend Nazis? And the argument they made then was essentially that if we get in the business of trying to distinguish exactly what kind of speech we are going to defend, and then where do we draw the line? And, and wherever we draw the line, it can, be, it can have harmful effects on the people we want to represent because they may not be able to rise to, to that particular um, benchmark. Um, and so, you, so flash forward to 1977, 1978, uh, when a group, a, a Nazi-allied group wanted to march in Skokie. Illinois, which was a suburb of Chicago, and which was then home to a fairly large population of Holocaust survivors. And Skokie was outraged that people wearing Nazi regalia and shouting Nazi slogans would want to march in Skokie, which of course was what the Nazi group wanted to provoke, and pass ordinances that would have made it impossible for them to hold that march. And the, the group then went to the ACLU in Illinois and they said, well, will you help us with this? Knowing full well that the ACLU had this, had this position and the ACLU did decide to defend them. And they won, they prevailed in court um, in that decision and, and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it caused um, shudders throughout the whole organization because even though that position was uncontroversial for people within the ACLU. It was very controversial for people outside the ACLU, particularly for many members of the Jewish community who, who said, wait a minute, why in the hell are you defending these awful, awful people? Uh, and who threatened to withdraw funding, uh, who threatened to um, basically punish the ACLU in whichever way they could. And the ACLU uh, leadership said, what in the hell are we gonna do with all of this? Say, yeah, how can we get our perspective out? And they finally decided to have an attorney, the, the, the attorney on the case, a guy named David, David Goldberger, uh, who was Jewish himself, you know, to write a letter explaining why it was that he took this case. And 
he rose to the challenge and with the help of others put together this letter that became uh, the most successful fundraising letter that they had done up to that date. And what he, what he said was quite simple. He said, look, you know, I'm Jewish. I don't like these Nazis any better than anybody else. In fact, I refuse to even capitalize the, the word Nazi in this letter. He said, but um, I'm also defending civil rights workers in Selma. He said, and the, and the very arguments that the city government in Skokie wants to use against these people is being used in Selma to try to block civil rights workers. And in order to help the people in Selma, I need to be consistent. I need to make the same argument about these kinds of, of, of laws if they're going to, they're going to stand uh, up to scrutiny by the, by the courts. Uh, it was an argument that many people found persuasive and it, as I said, became the most successful fundraising effort in history. So now we flash forward to 2017. And there's a similar case, and this time it's in Charlottesville, where this group called itself Unite the Right, which is, which is another sort of neo-Nazi, white supremacist type organization. Uh, and they wanted the right to hold a march uh, in this park, which it used to be Robert E. Lee Park. They were renaming the park to Emancipation Park. They were going to take the statue of Robert E. Lee, who, of course, was a Confederate war hero. They were going to take this down. Uh, and that made a lot of, or actually a lot of, that made some people angry um, because they were going to do that. So these some people, decided to hold a big march to protest this and to protest the whole movement against their heroes from the Confederacy. Uh, and, and it was also an effort to just unite nationally, you know, all these right-wing forces that were opposed to basically just uh, white supremacist forces. Um, and the city said, okay, we understand you got First Amendment rights, so we'll let you have your march, but we won't let you have it in what was then referred to as Lee Park. You got to have it somewhere a little bit further out, you know, from the center of town, where that'd be easier for the police to monitor and protect people and where it, it you know, it's less likely to cause havoc. Uh, and the ACLU took them to court along with a, another organization, a local organization that was, that was also there. And the court found in behalf of the organization, uh, which was that they, to move them, uh, would violate their free speech rights. And so they were uh, allowed to schedule the march where they originally wanted it. Well, the march never actually took place. I mean, what happened you know, is that um, the morning of the march, or even before the night before the march, you know, they marched into the University of Virginia, which is in Charlottesville, and they you know, raised havoc and got into a fist fight, and, 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 they, and that was broken up. Uh, and then the day of the march itself, there was, and, and Virginia is also an open carry state, so a lot of these people have weapons. You know, they show up in weapons and regalia, and it, it was such an ugly scene, and, and, and the portents of violence were so apparent that the cops basically declared it an illegal assembly and said, you know, this, we, this, this thing can't go on. We have to, but in the aftermath of that, even though the event itself never occurred, um, a young man who was a, um, a Nazi, uh, who was, a, who was a, who, who's for whom Adolf Hitler was a hero, uh, plunged his car into a number of people. Uh, so he can, can kill any young woman. And so that happened. And, and also there were two, uh, two policemen who died who were monitoring the march because their helicopter crashed. Uh, and so you have three deaths as a result of this and, and, and one that was, a, was, that was an outright murder, basically. And 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 and, obviously, and also you had close to twenty people injured by the same guy running in his um, his automobile into them, and it caused a crisis within the ACLU. Partly because the ACLU is a different organization um, in now than it was in 
1978. Uh, it did not have a racial justice segment in 1978. It did not have uh, any minority staff to really speak of, you know, back in 1978. You know, it had a very small number of African Americans and other uh, ethnic minorities working for them. And the country was in a different place than then. then. I mean, we did, we did not have a president who was openly uh, supporting white supremacists back then. So the whole dynamic was, was, you know, it changed. And a lot of these people said, why in the world, are, within the ACLU, why in the world are we defending people like this? Um, and that was a question that had not really been raised inside the ACLU back in 1978. And the ACLU had to grapple with it uh, and spent months um, with meetings um, and arguments back and forth and with the question of whether they should change their policies and ultimately decided that in large measure, they weren't going to change their policies, that they were going to still, you know, look at, not look at content. But they, but they did say that uh, they, were, they set up a procedure uh, by which to review the cases they were taking. And they also just so said, we absolutely are not going to defend people you know, who are carrying weapons and who, and who seem inclined towards violence. Well, uh, that, that's a wonderful explanation of all of that. And you, you actually, I don't know if it's there or somewhere else, you, you quote Morantz as saying that unchecked speech can expose us to real risks as well. And right. that's part of the complexity of free speech too. Well, that's what makes it very complicated now because you know the danger of the government trying to abolish the First Amendment is not very high. Um, but what, what we've discovered is that we have all of this speech uh, that flows out from, it seems everywhere, and then that surfaces on the internet and it surfaces uh, on Facebook um, and 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 various um, websites. Uh, where people propagate hate, where, where, where people encourage other folks uh, to organize. Uh, I mean, just the, the other day, we saw this debate about the Proud Boys. Well, one of the ways they organize is over the internet. You know, they, they, they use the internet and, and, and they find like-minded people and they decide they're going to all assemble together in Portland or whatever other city that they decide oh, and, they're going and to they assemble got a huge They got a huge boost from this last debate as well. Right, uh, and they got a nod from our our commander in chief, uh, and so I think a lot of people who have been free speech absolutists and still are, and still are by some definition are saying, "Well, wait a minute, we have to get a handle on this somehow, uh, and if we're not going to have the government censor, which most thinking people don't want to do. Then how are we going to handle this? Yeah, you know this this huge problem of this outflowing of bile and and, and rage." Uh, and stuff that can really create havoc in society. And you, you speak to that, and that's where I want to get to as well, is to some of the solutions of this. And you speak to it very eloquently in the book. You, you, know, you know, your whole idea of that we need to educate people in terms of how to, how to really understand what's factual and how to understand when they're bombarded by this information, how to filter it out. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a very poor job on several things. I mean, one, we've done a, a very poor job in terms of educating people on critical thinking, you know, and there's a lot of research, and I quote some of it, um, researchers at Stanford who took college students and high school students and exposed them to some of this nonsense on the web, uh, but also gave them the tools to get to the truth, you know, which is very easy in many instances where they could see that these were, were it was, quote, really fake news or, or that this, this was manufactured events and whatnot. 
And overwhelmingly, the, the students chose not to do that, not to check it out. They just accepted as given what was there. Um, and I think that's a throwback in a sense. I mean, our reading, particularly when we got what we thought was news, uh, if it came from any sort of reputable source in the past, had been um, edited uh, and, and had been checked by somebody who we sort of trusted. All this stuff that comes at you on the web, there's no telling where it comes from. There's no, there's no telling even you know, what country it comes from. Um, and we haven't taught people how to look through that and just not accept something because there's this idea, well, in, in the same way, well, it was in the newspaper. It must be right. Uh, well, it was on the internet, so of course it's right. And a lot of what's on the internet is absolute nonsense. And I think uh, a lot of what's on, on the internet is, is absolute propaganda. And, we don't, and we're not really equipped to deal with that. But we also seem to be very hesitant um, as a society to look to self-policing methods. Um, I mean, and, and I think that uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook is a good example of that. There's nothing at all in the First Amendment which says that a private organization that handles, that, that publishes information is forbidden to check the veracity of some of the information that it checks and is forbidden to have rules that, that speak to a certain kind of decency. There's nothing at all in, in First Amendment jurisprudence that would stop that. But also even the very idea, and I'm not, and I wanna make it very clear, I'm not advocating any kind of government crackdown and censorship, but the very idea that free speech has ever been unregulated is based in ignorance. Uh, there have always been limits on, on, on speech in this country and, and elsewhere, and our limits have tended to be uh, things like pornography and, and particularly particularly child pornography um, that, we've, that we place strict limits on, um, but obviously also things like libel um, you know, we put limits on. And, and going back um, to, at, at the very least, you know, 1942, when we had a famous case, the Chaplinsky case, uh, which had to do with with a uh, Jehovah's white uh, Jehovah's um, witness, you know, who was arrested by a cop because you know the person because the cop hadn't protected him in in I guess proselytizing on the street and he was getting abused, and so then he ends up calling um, the cop uh, a fascist, you know, and and and. The cop ends up arresting him for calling him a name, uh, and the Supreme Court upholds this arrest. Uh, and they basically came up with this theory they called fighting words, you know, which were that if you say things that are so provocative and so uh, obviously off base, and then people are going to get angry with you, and their ang anger is probably justified. So you're in the wrong when you do that. Well, that doctrine has sort of fallen into disuse, as far as I know. It's never explicitly overruled. You know, but we no longer really subscribe to it. But it wasn't until, um, what, 1969, where we had this uh, Supreme Court case, that they basically decided, the Supreme Court basically decided that uh, hate speech was okay, I mean, or at least that it was not forbidden by the uh, by the U.S. Constitution. That was in a case involving uh, some um, KKK folks from no, actually, yeah, some KKK from from in Ohio. So, so you have um, you know, you've always had at least some provisions that regulate some kinds of speech. And so, the question that I pose is that as a society, we we really need to think about this issue. And we need to really sort of sort through how we're going to protect ourselves and at the same time allow speech um, that is, is essential uh, and that is useful and that is just our right 
to have. Well, and you know, it, it, I, I think during Band Books Week, we all can agree that no matter what complexity there is in this, uh, in the notion of free speech, that uh, advocating um, the banning of any books is a really bad, bad thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't think anyone who, who considers themselves a fan of free speech or the First Amendment would advocate any would, of Exactly. You know, what's really interesting, you know, there's a wonderful quote on your book uh, by Everett Dennis, who talks about your book. He was at the Medill School in Northwestern, and he says about your book, he says, this compelling narrative guides its readers toward an understanding of the complex twists and turns of free speech in America. I think that really sums up what your book is. I think it's a, it's a brilliant analysis of where we are today and looking at the difficulties in applying much of what we used to apply when we were thinking of free speech to the complexities of our day today. I mean, you, you, you devote a whole chapter to what's happening on college campuses. We can't go through all that now, but right. just the complexity of what's happening on college campuses are, is quite remarkable. Um, not to mentioning, you know, what's happening with the way you know, we're still fighting the fight around, um, you know, moneyed, the money having, as you said before, the greatest access to being able to, uh, to express yourself. Because what good is free expression if you don't have the means to express yourself in that yeah. sense? And the, and the whole purpose for free speech, to go to sort of complete the circle, the whole point of having it was that it's supposed to make us a better democracy. Right. You know, and, and, so, and so the real question that we face as a society is what can we do at this point to first save our democracy and two, to make it better, I think. And those, uh, those are, uh, those are it's, a, it's a wonderful way that we can segue into what are two very distinct uh, challenges facing us right now, which is we have a political challenge and we have a cultural and social challenge at the same time. And, I'm, I'm, and they're all coming together at once while we also are in the middle of this pandemic, which is a, you know, a health challenge in the same way, which, which exposes a lot of these issues that, that you've been writing about and talking about. Ellis Coase, I could talk to you forever. Uh, this has been really, really wonderful. And I, I thank you for it. And would you end by maybe reading a little bit of part of that introduction of your book, sure. which I found so fascinating? Okay, this is from the introduction, as you say. No one expected their words to be enlightening or their tone harmonious. Hatred rarely comes in such flavors. It spills out as an ugly, incoherent mess infused with the rotten odor of willful ignorance. And so it was with the Nazi wannabes, cess-style white supremacists determined to make their mark on the world, committed to convincing anyone who might listen that their superiority was both evident and inevitable. The setting was downtown Charlottesville, Virginia, August 2017. Their mission was unity of like-minded hate mongers. Their leader, Jason Kessler, was a 33-year-old who lived with his parents and at once supported Barack Obama. He had learned that many, many demographers thought whites would eventually become a minority race in the United States. That news was so unsettling that Kessler remade himself into a white rights activist. 
It's one thing to have immigration, but to the point where they overwhelm the host population is not right, he said. He styled himself as a civil rights and human rights advocate focused on the Caucasian demographic in the mode of Jesus Christ and Mahatma Gandhi. His Unite the Right rally, observed the Christian Science Monitor, was supposed to be the movement's coming out party, an emergence, an emergence from the shadows of internet chat rooms into the national spotlight. And then that sort of sets the, the groundwork for why, why Charlottesville and the Charlottesville incident came about and, and, and what happened before that unfortunate murder uh, of the young woman. Well, Ellis, thank you so much for joining me on The Literary Life. The book is The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. You can buy it at Books and Books. You can buy it through your local indie bookstore or through bookshop.org. You can listen to Ellis. He's coming up. If you're hearing this in the month of October, he'll be at the Miami Book Fair uh, virtually in November. And I know what I'm going to do after uh, reading this. I'm going to run out and make sure that I read Democracy If We Can Keep It, which is the ACLU's 100-year fight for rights in America. Ellis, you've done all of us a great service. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you, Mitch. It was great being with you.